Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am the host of this show, as you should know. And if you do not know, that probably means you need to go back a few episodes and catch up. Ideally at, well, ideally at episode one of season one, but at least at the beginning of this season, season five. Uh, This episode today will be focused on the commentary related to the beginning of the Temptations of Christ. And so as a review, I have gone through a lot of the Old Testament examples related to the theology of obedience, uh, that we are to obey God above all else, but also submit to the earthly authorities. But we live in a world where there's a big contradiction between the two. So how do we parse that out? How then do we live? What is the relationship between the Christian and the state? These types of questions. And so now that we've covered all of that, I introduced this uh, next part of the season, the majority of the season, is what it will end up being, and uh, did that last episode. So this episode, we will go ahead and dig in. I'll start by reading the overall section that we will be drawing from. This is the Temptations of Christ that comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And again, this is the complete Jewish Bible version. Then the Spirit led Yeshua up into the wilderness to be tempted by the adversary. After Yeshua had fasted for forty days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, order these stones to become bread. But he answered, The Tanakh says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Then the adversary took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, jump, for the Tanakh says he will order his angels to be responsible for you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not hurt your feet on the stones. Yeshua replied to him, but it also says, do not put Adonai your God to the test. Once more, the adversary took him up to the summit of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory, and said to him, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Away with you, Satan, Yeshua said, for the Tanakh says, worship Adonai your God and serve only him. Then the adversary let him alone and angels came and took care of him. So we'll start off with a little bit of an overview here, looking at that whole section of scripture, then we'll get into the specific temptations. So Satan's main tactics are not to question Yeshua's position as the Son of God, but rather to ask for proof, to question the interpretation of the role, and to question God's boundaries around the associated properties. In doing so, he mainly insinuates not that Yeshua isn't the Son, but that there is no value in being the Son due to the lack of being able to use any of the obvious benefits for himself— or choose for himself how to reach God's intended ends. Again, it's not necessarily arguing that God intends for Yeshua to rule the earth. Uh, Satan would agree with that. He is just changing how Yeshua should get to that end. Now, often our earthly citizenship is viewed in similar terms. It is typically not a question of whether or not the Christian is the citizen of a state, but rather how do we prove we are godly citizens? What is the interpretation of the role of citizen? And what are the boundaries of this role? 
The logical conclusion can often be framed in the following false dichotomy, with the main inflection on the latter. Either we shouldn't be citizens of a state at all, and should separate into independent communities, or, usually the emphasis is on this, there is no value in being a citizen and a Christian unless we use this citizenship as a way to insert God's principles into the state apparatus, or as a defense measure against unbiblical practices. So those are usually the two ways that's interpreted. Either you completely get out of the state and form separate communities that are independent, or you use the state and become involved with it in a way that furthers God's principles. Just as Yeshua uses scripture to assert that he is both the Son and voluntarily limited in how he should use his abilities, we use scripture to show that we are both citizens of the kingdom of man, and we voluntarily limit how we use the associated influence we have through this role. Those who would use scripture to assert that we abandon the role of earthly citizen or that we use our earthly citizenship to further God's kingdom through man's politics, force, or coercion are mistakenly corrupting the word through questioning the interpretation of roles God has given us. As has been laid out extensively already, I will continue to reinforce that God's principles and the state are two opposite ways of handling societal structure and participation. It is a corruption of scripture to use it to justify the state as a godly institution or as a potential way to further godly goals. Adam and the nation of Israel were tempted in similar ways. The pitch to Adam was, uh, God created you in his image as the highest order of creation on earth. However, you don't have full knowledge and full freedom. If you really are like God in his image, as he says you are, do this one thing to receive what you deserve now. And by this means, you will more fully be like God. Uh, So sounds like a legitimate argument. To Israel, the argument was, you are God's chosen people promised to rule over the land and one day all peoples. However, this isn't the current reality. If you really are God's elect, take what is promised now by whatever means is practical. For Yeshua, getting back to what we just went over, the argument is, you have all power and authority and will rule over all the earth. However, you've been limited in being able to use these to accomplish God's promise. If you really are the Son of God, choose to reach God's promise now in the most practical ways available. Again, fairly convincing. We are always tempted to use our human wisdom and practical means to accomplish our goals, and God's goals even. However, we must have faith in God's plans and use His principles, even if that means giving up on opportunities to force God's promises into being. The means does not justify the ends if the means go against God's principles. The state operates against God's principles, and therefore attempting to use the force, coercion, or stolen funds of the state to achieve God's will is not justified. And that is what Jesus said as well. Uh, When Satan says that uh, you can have this, you can have that, why don't you do this? Uh, The answer is not that, oh, I can't. 
And the answer is not that, oh, God doesn't want me to eat or to rule the world or something like this or to protect me. No, the answer is just a matter of the means. It's, it's how and when and uh, how do we get to that ends. Uh, again, Satan recognizes who Jesus is. Yeshua is the Son of God with the power and authority, and Satan recognizes that. And uh, he also recognizes that the end goal, God's promise and God's plan, is for Yeshua to be the king, and that he will rule over everything. And so the in-between is where the adversary steps in and says, oh, well, do it this way. Let me help you. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and do that now? You can, and you're, you're going to God's goals. That's what he wants of you, so go ahead and do it. Why don't you do it? And that is more of the style of questioning. So keep in mind that Yeshua was led into the wilderness by God to be tempted. That was the stated purpose. He willingly submitted himself to the adversary to be tempted by worldly offers. Since Satan has been given dominion over the earth, Yeshua's submission to him for temptation is justified. Since states have dominion over the earth, our submission to them in earthly matters is justified. There is even an argument to be made that these are not separate instances, but rather that the hierarchy of earthly kingdoms is God over Satan, over states, over citizens. So you have God at the top, you have Satan under him, who God has given Satan authority over the world, and then you have states under Satan. Satan has uh, some influence and power and authority over the states, the earthly governments, the kingdom of man, and those states, those kingdoms of man, do have power and authority over the citizens. So again, that's a direct line to God. It's the in-between that has some issues there. However, when the adversary or the state go directly against God's principles, even if to achieve a goal that God has promised or demanded, we are not to participate. And that is the example that Yeshua gives. And so <clears throat> to get a little more specific, we can start off with the very first temptation. The first one would be Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. And that would be, after Yeshua had fasted for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, order these stones to become bread. But, he answered, The Tanakh says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. So, <clears throat> this first temptation has a few relevant applications, I think. To begin with, Yeshua is told to take care of the health of his body. This is in line with God's teachings for us, for all of us. Yeshua was to have a very important role to play in God's plan, and his body would need to remain alive to accomplish this at a bare minimum. The issue must not have been with the goal of providing sustenance for himself, obviously, since he needs this to survive and God wants him to survive, but rather with the means he was to use to attain sustenance. That is kind of what I was just explaining earlier with all of these. While Yeshua had the power to perform the miracle, just as other humans were given similar power from God as well at different times, the use of the power of God is to be used for the purposes of God. They are not to be used for ourselves. Serving others and bringing glory to God are the sanctioned reasons for using God's power miraculously. 
Yeshua later would use his power to create food, more than once, but each time it was primarily to feed others, not just himself, and to provide the means for others to hear about God, bringing him glory. Now, you could make an argument, and uh, probably justified, that if Yeshua truly was going to die, then maybe creating food for himself would have been a justified thing to do. But this is not what was going on. He was essentially fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So, going on. There is an obvious difference, though, between using power derived from being a citizen of the kingdom of God and power derived from being a citizen of the kingdom of man. These are two different things. The hierarchical structure of the source of the power and the means of its attainment are the key differences. Again, it's what's in between that counts. For God's kingdom, we have the Spirit of God working directly in and with us as we next go through Yeshua, whether directly or indirectly due to being imparted with his righteousness, to gain access to God. Our connection is thus God through Yeshua, through the Holy Spirit to us. On the contrary, our pattern our power of um, being a citizen flows from the state apparatus, which draws its power from the head of the state, whether a person or persons or written decree, which is ruled over by Satan, by the adversary. As a reminder, the scripture is clear that this world has a ruler who is against God and named the adversary. I can read a few verses that I've pulled out, um, that I've read before, but it's worth bringing up at this point, because some people would say that this is a bit of a stretch to say that the adversary is the one in charge of the kingdom of man. But John chapter 12, verse 31 says, Now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled. So the ruler of the world is being expelled. That is obviously not God. That would be the adversary. John 16, 8 through 11. When he comes, and this is talking about God or Christ, when he comes, he will show that the world is wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. About sin, in that people don't put their trust in me. About righteousness, in that I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. About judgment, in that the ruler of this world has been judged. Again, the ruler of this world being judged, and that's obviously not him talking about himself. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, following the course of this world is indicated to be following the power of the prince of the air, which is defined as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, although we'd have to draw more into this to fully uh, back up this conclusion, uh, I would say that this is saying that the kingdom of man, which is including all of the sons of disobedience, is ruled by a spirit. Uh, that would be the prince of the power of the air. And if you're following the course of this world, you're following uh, with the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God, then you're following the prince. You're following the one who is in charge of that kingdom. And again, there's you, you'd have to get into a little more to fully flesh that out, but that's the ba basis. 
Then again in Ephesians, this time chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Finally, grow powerful in union with the Lord, in union with his mighty strength. Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So we are struggling against not just human beings, but the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness. And so that would be those that are in charge of the world. And this is uh, plural, rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. So you could say that you have the spiritual realm, as well as the uh, earthly realm, the state apparatus, and all of these things, the various rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers as well. These are all plural, And uh, then it gets a little more specific, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And even though the spiritual forces of evil is plural as well, we know who is in charge of the spiritual forces. That is a spiritual being as well, and that is the adversary who is named in the previous verse, so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. And then it explains, because we know this is not just a physical battle, but we are battling against all of the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, those that are governing this darkness, these spiritual forces of evil from the heavenly realm. It gets pretty specific there. So, Scripture is also clear that setting up earthly rulership of men over men is a rejection of himself, and that in the end, these rulerships are the enemies of Christ and his kingdom to be eventually eliminated by God. So it's very clear that they are against God. Having an earthly ruler ruling over other men is not the way God designed it, and that in the end, these governments, these nations, these powers will be overthrown and destroyed, and they are enemies of God. They're they're not just a part of uh, the kingdom of God. They can be, they can't be, maybe so, maybe not. No, they are totally separate, and they are his enemies, very clearly. And uh, to back that up, we've got 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So that's uh, my point there, is that uh, setting up men, setting up a king to rule over a people group is uh, defined by God as a rejection of himself. They have rejected me from being king over them. So even if you want to narrow that down to God's people, and you want to say maybe that's the church or the kingdom of God or uh, the nation of Israel in this example, uh, it's still, you want a king? Well, that's rejecting God just inherently. That, that's the way God sees it. The next part is about uh, 
more end times. That's kind of the beginning, and then this is the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 25. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive, but each in his own order. The Messiah is the firstfruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming, then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So putting an end to every rulership, every authority, every power, talking about when Messiah comes and takes over rulership, gives that over to the Father, um, that the Messiah is going to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet, defined as every rulership, every authority, every power. They are defined as his enemies. He is going to take over, and that would be any earthly government that exists, the entire, the entirety of the kingdom of man. And then he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. But he will rule until he does this, destroys all of his enemies. His enemies are all of the <laughs> rulerships, authorities, and powers. So that, that should be pretty clear as to what that means. Thus, the chain for the source of our earthly kingdom power is Satan through the state, through its bureaucracy to us. The means of how God's kingdom's power is distributed all flows directly from an aspect of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The means through which Satan's power is distributed is through deceit, theft, murder, politics, corruption, force, coercion, and non-voluntary action. Well, this does not mean that every connection to and every cog of the state are evil. It does mean that the system itself is directly tied to evil practices and evil rulership. We know who rules over these systems. There may be times that using the state through our rights as citizens is acceptable for a means to serve others and preach God's message. On the whole, however, the vast majority of our lives and action should have little to nothing to do with the state and any involvement and use thereof should be hesitantly and warily used. I am not to take a stand on my rights and authorities as a citizen for my own benefit or for the benefit of protecting idealistic aspects of the state. Uh, that is uh, not what I should be seeking to do. I will more often than not be called to give up my rights and authorities, and in doing so, act as a witness to others for God and against the state, highlighting its injustices. You can look at the original church for this. It happened over and over again. Yeshua had the right to feed himself, and the authority to create his own food. He, however, gave up these rights and authorities as a witness for the importance of spiritual life and relying on God, as well as a witness against Satan, highlighting his attempt to twist God's principles. The state follows Satan's proposal, and although it has no resources itself, it focuses on sustaining itself. It uses its power to confiscate and allocate resources as it wills so that it remains in perpetual existence and its members have their needs and desires satisfied. We are also tempted to use the power of the state to satisfy our own needs and desires. This could be through the welfare system, tax breaks, health care, etc. We look to create what we, quote, need, usually that's truly what we want, through the power of the state. 
In reality, we are using the third party of the state to take from others and give to us. Yeshua didn't take from others, nor did he look to others or his own power or privilege to provide for himself. Through faith, long-suffering, and patience, he counted on God to provide and focused strictly on serving others over himself. That's what he did, and we are to mirror him in all things. Another interesting aspect is that Yeshua is tempted to create something from nothing, to create sustenance from non-sustenance. Later, he converts one drink, water, to another, wine, or some food, the fish and the loaves, to much food, more fish and more loaves, or an unhealthy person to a healthy one, or a dead one to a living one. He does not take one thing and change it completely into something else. This is in contrast to how the state operates. It creates authority from non-authority, value from non-value. No government derives its authority from a faithful manifestation of God's direct establishment, nor does any state hold its authority through full voluntary acceptance. Therefore, those states have full authority. It is created by themselves from nothing, from the perspective of God's principles, at least. Fiat money is a similar example. The money, digital or paper, has no value itself, nor is it fully backed by something of true value. It derives its value from nothing, nothing but the authority of the state. There are similar arguments to be made against genetic modification, gain-of-function research, and other modern scientific pursuits where one thing is altered and changed into something else, not into another version of what it is. Although not applicable in this context, these pursuits also contradict the principles against illicit mixtures, as stated in Old Testament law. And that is a totally different study. There is an obvious difference between Yeshua's right to change nature and matter and the state's rights. Again, the state has not been given the authority to do so by God. Yeshua and his followers have. Even so, our authority over the world has limits, which we are to voluntarily submit to. And even Yeshua, whose power and authority did not have limits, he voluntarily submitted to these principles as well. Though we have more God-derived power and authority than the state, we are to submit to the state's unbiblical earthly rule and abuse of the powers they create themselves. Yeshua does the same. He submits to earthly authorities, though he has more authority, truly, than they do. Although they create charges against him from nothing, he does not use his power for his own benefit and safety. We are not to create value from nothing. We are to work for our rewards or receive them directly from God or by God's directives to serve others. So the key to this temptation is, again, it's the, it's the means, it's, it's not the ends, and it is not about your rights. It is not about the power that you have. It is not about who has true authority. It's about where is that authority derived from, and how do we use it? How do we use the power that we have? And what chain of command, what hierarchy are we following? It is these types of things. It is how do we get to that end? Now, obviously, God wants all humanity to turn to him. And eventually, every knee will bow. But like always, the question is, how do we get there? What does that look like? Is that something that God does himself? Is that something that we do on our own? Is that something that God helps us to do? And practically, what does that look like? 
And while I cannot answer all of those questions completely, what I can do is say that whatever role we have to play in accomplishing God's roles uh, will be in line with God's principles. We are not going to be using things that God says not to use, or that God uh, calls his enemy, or that God says we should not turn to and we should not establish, we should not set this up. Do not put a king to rule over you as a people group. You shouldn't do that. And all rulerships and authorities are his enemies and will be destroyed. And there is a ruler over this world, over this earth. There is a spiritual entity that rules over the authorities, the rulers, and the powers of this earth. So it's it's pretty clear that as a Christian, I should not be using the means of the state to accomplish the goals of God. There are many other ways that I can do that. And that is something we can look to the original church for examples of. They did have a lot of opportunity to use more political means. They were in Rome. It's not that they had uh, no power or influence whatsoever. Now, they probably did not have the same amount of power and influence as uh, I do in America in the modern times. Uh, Maybe it's kind of arguable, but uh, at least the perceived amount of power that an American citizen has is probably more than the way we perceive the amount of power that uh, the Christians had in Rome. But in reality, they had ways of using a political method, especially as time went on and the church spread to the Gentiles and became more popular throughout Rome. Heck, even Jesus had the ability to be a king. He could have been the king of the Jews legitimately, and people would have followed him, but he chose not to. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we're to follow those examples. That's what we are told to do. We are told to follow the example of Christ. What did Christ do? That not only did he not use his full power and authority, he also submitted to those who didn't have any real authority, and their power was no more than his, much less. But he submitted anyway. What did the original church do? Well, when soldiers came and took Christians to knowingly be murdered, they went. They went willingly. And uh, not only that, a lot of them praised God for the ability and the opportunity to be martyrs and to be an example and to be a witness. Because not only are they a witness for their faith in Christ, not only are they a witness for uh, how you can have true joy through God despite your earthly conditions— they were also a witness of the corruption and evil of Rome, of the governing authorities, that they were overstepping, they were overreaching, they were murdering people. And that is highlighted much more when the Christian voluntarily went with the soldier than if the Christians put up a fight, which they had every right to do to defend themselves and their friends and their fellow Christians, they could have fought. But if they did fight, are you as much of a witness to the injustice of what's going on as if you submit? And although that's not easy, uh, that is what the example is. That was the example of Christ as well. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to stop there. I think that uh, brings us up to a good stopping point because that covers the first full temptation. And then next time we will cover the next, we might cover the next few because we were able to cover the overview plus the first one. So next time we should be able to cover a few of the 
temptations and uh, maybe wrap that up and uh, get into the Sermon on the Mount. That would be very cool. So uh, more than likely, next episode will wrap up the temptations of Christ, and then the following will begin the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And that is going to be the bulk of this season. There is just so much to go through there. It is definitely, in my opinion, uh, one of the best sections of Scripture, period, and one of the best for looking at how should we live in many different ways. So that's where we're going. In the meantime, uh, if you want to know any more about resources I've used or any more specifics, you want some of these verses I quoted, things like that, uh, just reach out to me and I'll send them to you. I've got all that. I don't really have the time or ability to copy and paste every single thing into the show notes and make it five pages long. That's just not very realistic, but I can email that to you if you want. So feel free to reach out. That's ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Also, especially since we're digging into commentary and I am not divine, uh, there may be things that you disagree with or you have questions about or you want to discuss. Feel free to reach out and I would love to do so. And if there is anything that uh, seems to be worthy of bringing up on the show itself, I can bring that up in a further episode. So please do that. Please do leave a rating and a review if you have not done that before. That is very helpful. And also, thank you very much to those that are still supporting on Patreon and Subscribestar. That is very much appreciated. There are a lot of people that have had to drop off over uh, the past year or so, usually due to financial situations, and that is totally understandable. We have also had a few people join up. So thank you very much. That is uh, the way that I pay for everything associated with this show, and I currently am still able to do that, and that is very, very much appreciated. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting in all the ways that you do. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.